Amen. That is the wrong passage. Okay, now we're good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for calling us, Lord, into your presence. Lord, we thank you for the love that is revealed in that act. Um, God, we know that this is a place where you meet us, and so we pray that your spirit would do a work through his word this morning. Father, prepare our hearts. Help us to hear from you, Lord, and help us to see Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, I, not to brag, but I have been a pretty effective evangelist in my neighborhood, not for coming to church, um, but for mountain biking. Um, We've lived in our place for a a few years now, and uh, I've been mountain biking for about three years. And in that time, I have convinced three of my neighbors to go out and get mountain bikes, which has made their spouses just very happy. Not so much. Uh, But I've gotten some friends to to do that with me, and they have all gotten hooked. And so me and about three other guys uh, are on a group text in which we continually give one another mountain biking updates. Like, I just rode this trail, or this is me wiping out on this trail, or I saw a snake. Like, really important things like that. Well, the other day I was on a ride, and apparently, according to an app that a lot of mountain bikers use called Strava, that ride made me the local legend of a particular trail called Lynx, in case you were curious. Um, None of you were, that's okay. Uh, Now, being the local legend of a trail simply means that I have ridden that trail more than anyone else in a 90-day increment. So one of my friends saw, he was on Strava, he saw my ride, he saw that I became the local legend, he took a picture of it, took a screenshot, and sent it to me, or sent it in the group text, and he's like, Nick, you're the local legend, this is awesome. And I immediately deflected, I said, you know, it's, it just means that I'm boring, and that I just do the same trails over and over again. But there was a part of me that kind of liked being the local legend of Lynx. Um, I, I kind of like that title, I am the local legend. And that same part of me doesn't really like to leave Aliso Viejo for extended periods of time because then I might lose that status. Like this guy, Patrick, who is breathing down my neck constantly, stealing my local legend titles from me. He's welcome in this church because God is gracious, but I'm less so. But something like, uh, like, like an app, like Strava, is funny because it is essentially a digital resume that displays all of your accomplishments. Now granted, they are accomplishments for a hobby, but they're accomplishment, accomplishments nonetheless. And it taps into something that all of us have to varying degrees. And that is the impulse to self-justify through achievement. To say, I matter. I'm significant because I've done X. We all have this tendency rooted deep within us to try to build our own resumes. So I want you to think for just a minute before we dig into this text. What do you point to as evidence of the fact that you matter? How would you complete the sentence, I know I'm significant because fill in the blank. 
I know I'm significant because I'm a great mom. I know I'm significant because I'm a hard worker. I know I'm significant because I'm uniquely intelligent. I know I'm significant because I'm a world traveler. I know I'm significant because I'm the local... No. But how would you complete that sentence? Well, our text this morning deals with our tendency to resume build, our tendency to self-justify in a powerful way. Here, the Apostle Paul, writing to a culture that is obsessed with resume building, lays out his own resume, not with the intention of boasting, but to show what such activity is actually worth. According to Paul, all attempts to find oneself apart from Christ, to make a name for oneself apart from Him, all such attempts are worthless. He writes in Philippians 3, 7, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. So this morning, I want us to take some time to dig into this text, and we're going to look at three things. We're going to look first at our main pursuit Second, how we try to get the thing that we're pursuing. And third, what we actually need. So let's start by looking at our main pursuit together. You might be wondering, what is our main pursuit? Well, Paul states it in the negative in verse 9, saying that he is no longer interested in, let's look at verse 9, having a righteousness of his own from the law. Paul's main pursuit Our main pursuit is righteousness. Now, we may not think of or use this term, but the quest for righteousness is at the center of all of our pursuits. Even the atheist moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at NYU, has written in his book, The Righteous Mind, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. Now, you might be wondering, what is it? What does righteousness mean? Well, in one sense, it means to act rightly, to do what is right or virtuous. But the Bible fills that out more, indicating that righteousness isn't just about doing right. It's also a relational term, indicating that we are in right standing. Human beings greatly desire both. We want to know that what we are doing is the right thing, and we want to be in right standing with the people that we care about. Now, in a pluralistic society like ours, there are different standards of righteousness, and our pursuits may look very different, but it is a singular pursuit, the desire for a righteousness of our own from the law. And again, I think this is a strong desire, even in a culture like ours, Even though on the one hand, we we often deny the existence of absolutes, particularly moral absolutes. But on the other hand, we can be a very legalistic culture and condemning of various moral missteps. There was an article last year published in The New Yorker entitled, The Shaming Industrial Complex, in which the writer Becca Rothfield calls shaming a national pastime. And I think that this is something that we've all observed in in various spheres, but this wouldn't be the case if we weren't consumed with, obsessed with righteousness. So if you're wondering what that pursuit, the quest for righteousness looks like in your own life, then you can ask yourself these diagnostic questions. First, what things in your life 
are you the most proud of? And second, perhaps more importantly, what things in your life are you most ashamed of not being? Those two questions often tell us what we're pursuing in order to achieve right standing, in order to be righteous. When I asked myself that question uh, this, this last week, you know, in an, in an attempt to, to practice what I preach, um, I try to do that on occasion. Um, I actually had a conversation recently with a friend who's not, not a Christian, doesn't go to church, not really familiar with preaching. Uh, he used that f- phrase on himself, you know, practice, I want to practice what I preach, and as we were talking, and, and then he stopped right after he said that, and he's like, that's got to be weird for you, because you like, like literally preach. And I'm like, yeah, I literally do, and, and yes, it is weird for me, but anyway. But in an attempt to, to answer, or in an attempt to practice what I preach, I, I tried to answer these questions this last week, and when I got to the second question, right, what I'm ashamed of not being, that word, the word disciplined kept coming to mind. I wish that I was more disciplined, disciplined with how I use my time, disciplined with what I commit myself to. I wish that I was less prone to distraction, And so then you ask the deeper question, well, why? And I think it's because I want to do more. I want to do more and I want to do better. I want to be more efficient. I want to accomplish more. And this shows me that to a degree, I'm trying to find my righteousness through my work, through my productivity. I want to be successful. Now, success for a pastor has different metrics and outcomes than most other vocations, But the desire remains. It remains in in many pastors, including myself. But trying to find righteousness through work, even in work for the kingdom, or any measure of success, I mean, that is a a dead end. A while back, uh, David Brooks wrote an article in the New York Times entitled, Five Lies Our Culture Tells. And the first lie that he mentions is the idea that success, however you measure it, The first lie is that success will make you happy. He says that this is an idea we foist on the young, and he notes that college mental health facilities are swamped and suicide rates are spiking. So many forums are continually perpetuating the idea that if you make it, life will be good. But he writes, everybody who has actually tasted success can tell you that's not true. He recounts, I remember when the editor of my first book called to tell me that it had made the bestseller list. It felt like nothing. It was external to me. He says that success can spare you from the shame you might experience if you see yourself as a failure, but success alone can't give you peace and fulfillment. He writes, if you build your life around it, your ambitions will always race out in front of what you've achieved leaving you anxious and dissatisfied. In a different New York Times article, a writer named Frank Bruni comments that our success-obsessed culture leaves many of us, especially young people, simultaneously both frazzled and fragile. This is what pursuing righteousness on our own ends up leading to. But it doesn't stop that pursuit. We we, we may know this on one level, but we still go after it. So I want to take some time to look at how we try to get righteousness on our own. And I think one of the most popular ways of pursuing righteousness is through building our resumes, listing our achievements in the areas that we care about so as to communicate that we matter. 
And in verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out his resume. And I'm not going to read it right now, but it is up there for you to peruse. Now, before we look at, at the specific credentials that Paul lays out, I'd like to take a minute to just note the context. Right? Why is it that Paul lays out his credentials in the way that he does uh, in this text for this people, the people in the church at Philippi? Well, interestingly, Philippi was a Roman province in Macedonia, and it's a city that's referred to by some as a sort of little Rome. Uh, eventually, it was elevated to the status of Colonia Augusta, which is a term that came to denote the highest status of a Roman city. But like any place with the designation little in front of it, right, there was an awareness of the fact that Philippi was not, in fact, Rome. As great as it might be, it didn't measure up to Rome, and the Philippians knew that. So how did they deal with that reality? Well, they became obsessed with status. Interestingly, one of the things that archaeologists have found in the ruins of Philippi are various honor inscriptions detailing the careers and good deeds of various citizens in Philippi. And these honor inscriptions have been unearthed throughout the colony. Uh, Joe Hellerman, who's a professor at Talbot, in his book, Reconstructing Honor in Roman Philippi, explains, surviving examples of these outward tokens of high achievement, as Dio calls them, Dio was a second century Roman historian and senator, abound in and around Philippi to a degree unparalleled elsewhere in the Eastern Empire. We must remind ourselves that we owe our surviving evidence solely to the incessant desire of members of the aristocracy to proclaim their social status publicly in the form of monuments erected throughout the colony. The pillar, the inscription, and being set up in bronze are regarded as a high honor by noble men. That last part is from Dio again. Hellerman, Hellerman uh, then goes on to show that this wasn't just noblemen who were concerned with having their honor inscriptions preserved and enshrined throughout the city. People of all classes desired to have their achievements displayed in this way. And what are these honor inscriptions? Well, they are basically ancient resumes that are literally chiseled in stone and set up throughout the city. So when one went outside, one would immediately be confronted with the achievements of people throughout the city. It was constantly in people's faces. Self-justification, resume building, this was the air that the people of Philippi breathed. And so these honor inscriptions were an ancient attempt by these people, by the people of Philippi, to say, look here, right? I matter, here's the proof, I am righteous. So Paul, in this passage, knowing this about the people to whom he writes, crafts his own resume. And we see it here in verses 5 through 6. Now, Paul's resume is a Jewish resume, and this is important because in the first few verses of chapter 3, we see that the people uh, that Paul is, or th that we see that Paul is concerned with a group of people that have infiltrated the Philippian church. This is a group of people known as the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who came in and, and were trying to tell Gentile converts that in order to really follow Jesus, you had to maintain certain Jewish rights, like the right of circumcision. And so against them, Paul declares in verse 3, for we are the circumcision, those who by faith have been united to Jesus. 
We are the circumcision, the ones who worship, worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. But if anyone wants to come back at Paul and say, well, it's because of your own laziness or lack of credentials that you're saying that he wants to establish, actually, no, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Just like a not-so-humble brag right there. But he goes on to list the reasons why he has uh, such confidence. And he lists his Jewish credentials, but he does so using this Roman format, thereby universalizing the principle that however you want to go about achieving a righteousness of your own, it is futile without Jesus. He lays out his resume in other places throughout the epistles, but the way that he does so here in Philippians is unique. And he takes on the form of what's called a cursus honorum. It translates to honors race. And there's a marked difference in his writing when he gets to verses 5 and 6. Joe Hellerman once again says, Listeners steeped in the social world of Roman Philippi could hardly have heard Paul's list of accomplishments without immediately reflecting upon the multitude of inscriptions that confronted them on a daily basis with the honors and achievements of their fellow colonists. And we can see this, we can see uh, Paul inhabiting this writing style as, as it changes marked, markedly in verses 5 and 6. He goes from long, drawn-out sentences to these short little bursts, again, mimicking the resumes of the day. They have to be short because they're being chiseled in stone, right? And he copies that. Again, uh, Joe Hellerman says, just like Philippi's honor inscriptions, for example, Paul lists ascribed honors inherited at birth first, followed by achieved honors, adult accomplishments. All right, so this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, you guys are obsessed with this. Let me show you my credentials, and then I'll tell you what it's all worth. So let's go ahead and look at some of Paul's credentials in verses 5 and 6. There are seven virtues that he lays out. The first four are virtues simply granted to him by birth. The last three are his own accomplishments. First, we see that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This means that, his, uh, it means that he was not a later convert to Judaism. Instead, he was born into a family that cared so deeply about a strict adherence to the law that he was circumcised when he was supposed to be. He was an insider from birth. Second, he's of the people of Israel. In addition to not being a convert himself, his family was Jewish by birth as well. Third, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land and the only tribe to remain faithful to Judah. Another note, too, in Benjamin's favor is that King Saul was the first king of Israel. And he fell, but he was the first king. He was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, likely meaning that he spoke Hebrew. We know that he was born outside of the promised land. He grew up in Tarsus, and so he also spoke Greek, or probably primarily spoke Greek, but he knew the language of his people. He knew the language that the scriptures were originally written in. So he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. So by birth, Paul was a consummate insider. But he didn't rest solely on his noble birth. No, he added a number of personal achievements to his impeccable record. And the last three fall into this category of, of adult achievements. Fifth, we see that he was a Pharisee. 
right, regarding the law of Pharisee. Pharisees were among the strictest observers of the law. They knew the Bible inside and out, and they were known and revered for their faithfulness. Sixth, Paul was so zealous for religious piety that he became a persecutor of the church. Seeing Christianity initially as a heretical sect, he was willing to go to extreme lengths to snuff it out. And lastly, Paul says that his conduct under the law was blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that he considered himself to be without sin. Instead, he's saying that he held to the law so strictly that even when he did sin, he atoned for it thoroughly and immediately. This was Paul's resume. These credentials were the source of his confidence and, self, and sense of self before he came to know Jesus. These were the things that he could point to as proof of the fact that he mattered, that he was important, that he was righteous. And you know what? This was a pretty solid resume. For that time and place, these were credentials that one could be proud of. And while it may seem odd for us to recite our qualifications in this form and with this level of intensity, this whole resume compiling practice is something that we do all of the time. And sometimes we have to, sometimes we literally have to make a resume because we want to get a job or go to a school and we need to compile why we belong. But we don't just do that when we want to be accepted by an institution. Now, we see siblings doing this as they, as they jockey for position in a family, right? I should be allowed this privilege over my brother or my sister because I'm the responsible one. Growing up, we do this with friends, we change the way that we dress. We, we change the music that we listen to. We, we make jokes that are, that are trying to get at a certain aesthetic because we want to prove that we belong. We see, we see friends competing with each other, trying to prove their worth over against each other. We see this happening in romantic relationships where people are examined based on their looks and qualifications. Are you really worthy of me? And we certainly try to prove to the other person that, 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 we, are, that we are worthy, that we are a catch. But you know what? We often will do this with ourselves too. Have you ever had an argument with no one? All right. You walk away from a situation where you feel slighted or where you feel like you're not being seen for the righteous person that you are, and so you construct elaborate arguments, thinking of all the things that you should have said in the moment, and sometimes you verbalize them for your car or your empty bedroom. Right, what are we doing when we do that? We're making a case. We are building a resume. We are saying, no, 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 I am important. If this person could see my righteousness, then clearly they wouldn't respond to me that way or they wouldn't treat me that way. But friends, at the end of the day, all of our resume building leaves us feeling empty and phony. David Foster Wallace wrote a short story called Good Old Neon, which is one long monologue from someone who was utterly exhausted from practicing resume building. Uh, the main character had done well for himself. He had gotten an impressive job. He'd done well in school. He never had a hard time finding a date. But he recognizes that all of his efforts were done to create a certain impression of himself in other people, mostly to be liked or admired. 
He says that each new success didn't come with any lasting joy because, I'm going to quote here, I was always scared I wouldn't do well enough. The fear made me work really hard, so I'd always do well and end up getting what I wanted. But then, once I got the best grade or made the team, I wouldn't feel much of anything except maybe fear that I wouldn't be able to do it again. This is what the practice of resume building leads to. It is tiring, and it leaves us feeling unsatisfied and insecure. So think for a minute. Where do you find yourself doing that? In what areas are you, in your life are you eager to point to your own achievements? Friends, this practice is a dead end because on our own, we will never reach a point where we can say, it's enough. I've achieved enough. I am finally where I want to be and I will stay here forever. Oh, it doesn't happen. When we pursue righteousness in this way, we just end up feeling frazzled and fragile. But Paul ultimately plays the honor game so that he can dismiss all this type of posturing as worthless. So let's, let's finish now by looking at what we actually need. In verse 7, Paul writes this. He says, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. And he states that point even more strongly in the following verse. In verse 8, More than that, I consider everything to be, to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Paul looks at all of his credentials, all of the things that he had been trying to hang his hat on previously, and he says that they are as nothing to him now. But then he makes the point even more strongly. In fact, he says that they are scubalon. The word translated in the CSB here as dung. In the ESV, it is rubbish. At the time of Paul's writing, this word scubalon was used for excrement, manure, garbage, or kitchen scraps. And regardless of, of what context you kind of find it in, the point is that it is useless and quite undesirable. Things that we want to discard, things that we don't want to be around. J.I. Packer, who's a, a biblical scholar, theologian, says that scubalon is a coarse, ugly, violent word. Paul is using a, he's using a nasty word here, just so that we can understand how important what he's talking about is. Paul wants to state as forcefully as he can that everything he had worked for previously can be flushed as far as he's concerned. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. To know Jesus, to be in relationship with him and to be found in him, right, united to him, this is the most important thing to Paul. And what does he gain with Christ? Well, he gains the thing that he'd been searching for his entire life, the thing that we are searching for desperately. He gains actual righteousness. 
He explains in verse 8 and 9, Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. See, all of Paul's credential building at the end of the day, all of our credential building at the end of the day, it's a pursuit of righteousness. But as we said before, it is never enough. And the Bible is brutally honest about this reality, stating in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. And all of us know deep down that despite our resumes, we don't measure up. And our attempts to overcome that on our own, what do they amount to according to Isaiah 6? They amount to filthy rags, polluted garments. Why? Well, because there's always a little bit, there's always a little bit of sin mixed up with our good deeds, isn't there? There's always a little bit of self-interest, a little bit of unrighteousness, a little bit of scubalon mixed in with all of our attempts at righteousness, and it ruins, it ruins the whole thing. Imagine that you had a friend that said, I made you a cake, and I went and found the finest ingredients, and it's, it's my grandmother's recipe, so it's, it's good. Right? It's, it's been passed down from generations, and, and I think you're going to love it. Now, when I was making it, things got a little crazy in the kitchen, and, and there's maybe like a little bit of scubalon mixed up into the cake, but you're not even going to notice it. It's going to be delicious. If you knew that, I'd venture to guess you're probably not going to eat that cake. No matter how good it looks, no matter how good it smells, no matter how good it might taste, that little bit of scubalon, it ruins the entire thing. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to settle for scubalon. We don't have to settle for polluted garments. Why? Because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the thing that we so desperately want, the thing that our hearts need. And when it comes down to it, the only one who really has a right to list his credentials with confidence is Jesus. He lived the life that we are all pursuing but fail to reach. But he came not to flaunt his perfection or hold it over our heads. Instead, he came to die, to take the punishment that our sins, that our failures deserve. And this passage makes clear that through faith, Jesus's righteousness, Jesus's impeccable credentials, they become ours. So what does that mean for you? Friends, it means that you are free. Finally. You are free from having to self-justify, from having to constantly prove to others, from having to constantly prove to yourself that you matter. Why? Because the Son of God, Jesus, the one who made everything, says that you matter. 
But he doesn't just say it, he shows it by giving his life for you. Paul begins Philippians 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago, by laying out the incredible grace and humility of Jesus. He tells us that Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hellerman, the the scholar that I've been quoting throughout, he sees this description of Jesus as a sort of anti-cursus honorum, the anti-honors race. Jesus, instead of using his social capital to gain more honors and public recognition, he gave it all up for us. He decided that despite our sin, despite our failure, despite the lack apparent in our resumes, which at the end of the day amount to scubalon, despite all of that, Jesus decided that we were worth it. Friends, it means that despite your sin, despite your failures, despite your resume and all of the things that you know are missing from it, Jesus decided that you, you were worth it. Can you hear that? Can you accept that? Because I think that when we do, it will change everything. There's still work to be done, sure, but I think it changes dramatically the way that we approach it. We are freed now to love people as ends in themselves, not as a means of self-justification. We are free now to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in as ends in themselves or as ways to, to help other people and love God, not as a way for us to check a box not as a way for us to to jockey for position or say, look, I matter because I did this. No, our worth is wrapped up in what Jesus has done. He says, I love you, and that makes you worthy. And so now in freedom, we get to live lives of love and service for one another. Amen? May we do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pray that you'd use these words to shape our hearts. Father, we pray that by your spirit we would be able to see the ways in which we have been trying to build a resume. Ways that we have been trying to justify ourselves. Ways that we've been trying to prove that we are matter, that we matter, that we are worthwhile. Lord, Free us from that. Lord, help us to find rest and joy. Help us to find peace in belonging to Jesus. Lord, free us from the constant pursuit of trying to obtain our own righteousness through works of the law. Instead, God, help us to claim with everything we've got the righteousness of Jesus, which is given to us as a free gift of grace. Father, give us faith to receive that.
Forgive us, Lord, when we try on our own. Help us to see those things. Help us to see those attempts to to craft our own credentials, to craft our own righteousness. Help us to see those things, Lord, as futile, because they are. Forgive us when we keep going back to them. Lord, we pray that you would continually bring us back to the cross. Help us to see the love and the grace that you have lavished on us there. Help us to know that we are accepted and help us to live in light of that reality, Lord. Help us to trust in the righteousness of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.